the um, Advent season, that is what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at how God has kept his promises. Next Sunday, how God has kept his promise to Eve, then to Abraham, then to David, then to Micah. And then on Christmas morning, we are going to finish with how he has kept his promise to Isaiah the prophet. But this morning, I want you to think the unthinkable. I want you to consider the paradox of Christmas, that what could not possibly be true has come true, that the word became flesh, that the almighty became weak, that the rich became poor, and the king has become the servant of all. Let's look at the first one then, the word became flesh. Okay, look again at John 1 verse 1, which Lydia read to us earlier. In the beginning was the word. Simple, isn't it? A one-liner. It would not, it's not John. If he had tried John, it would have been difficult for John to write a more loaded sentence than that. Because to the Greeks, if you were living in the Greco-Roman culture at the time, to the Greeks, the word, the logos, sure, it could mean simply a message or a a word, but to anyone with even the smallest smattering of philosophical knowledge, this was hugely loaded. Because the logos, the word, was the rational principle. It was the impersonal principle fundamental basis for life, the universe, and everything. It would be like a philosopher today saying, in the beginning was reason. Or for those of you on the EPFL campus, it would be like saying, in the beginning, there was science. In the beginning was what we consider the basis of everything. That's how the Greeks would have read it, heard it. His Jewish readers, they would have heard something different because to them, the word, the logos, had different meanings. In the Old Testament, the word was God's power in creation. In Genesis 1, God spoke the word and the stars span into place. And plants and trees erupted from the ground. And birds took off and started flying. And dolphins leapt through the waves. But it was also through his word that God had set his people free from slavery. And he had spoken to them through the word, through the prophets. So whatever your ethnic background was, whether you were Jew or Gentile, when John's first readers read this, they would have been thinking, I know what he's talking about. And that word, that logos, John says, was in the beginning. And he's riffing off of the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, before anything else existed, before anything was created, the word, the logos, was. That means there was not a day. There was not an hour, there was not a second, nor even a fraction of a second, when the word was not. Before time began, the word was. But then look what John says, verse 1 again. And the word was with God. 
Now, if you're with someone, it implies you're in some kind of relationship with them, doesn't it? I mean, just imagine, you know, you, you, imagine there's a young couple that you know, and um, somebody else tells you that they're spending time together. They're spending time with each other. Okay, you know what that means, don't you? Okay, they are making each other, they're spending, they're spending time with each other. They're, they're making each other and their relationship with each other the focus of their attention. They are turning towards each other. And John is saying, the word was with God from before time began. They have been in relationship with each other and they have been turned towards each other and focused on each other, which tells you something else as well. Because to be with someone just naturally implies that you are a different person from that someone. Now, sure, I could, I could tell you, you know, after Sunday morning, I am a bit peopled out and I need to spend time with myself. And you would not go, why does Martin think he's two different people? Okay, you would go, why is Martin such an introvert? Okay, but to say that Jack was with Jill tells you that Jack and Jill are not the same person. And here is John saying, and the word was with God. That from all eternity, the word and God are two distinct persons, turned towards each other, enjoying one another. Which would be extraordinary enough if it wasn't for what John says next. Verse 1 again. And the word was God. The word eternally existing with God, delighting in God, yet a separate person from God, is God himself. Now, what is that? That is just one part of the mystery of the Trinity, that the word, the second person of the Trinity, is in the words of the creed, which we're going to recite together later, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. Okay, but then John sets off an earthquake. Jump forward to verse 14. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, in uh, Greco-Roman culture, uh, people lived uh, with this dualistic sense of body and spirit. In fact, if you look at what's going on in culture at the moment, this is coming back in in this whole transgender stuff. Okay, like a young lady I uh, talked to not so long ago who said that she was a spirit trapped in a body. Okay, if the Greeks in ancient Greek, uh, Greco-Roman cultures heard that, they would have said, yeah, I totally agree with you. Because they thought the spirit was good but the body, the physical, was bad. It's like a prison. So to them, it would have been inconceivable that the eternal word, the very essence of being, would become flesh. Because he doesn't just say he became a man. I mean, they had loads of gods in their Greek mythology who became men. He says he became flesh. I want you to think how shocking that is. I mean, you've heard of the incarnation. The incarnation. You've also heard of chili con carne. Okay, 
chili with meat. And so the word doesn't just become a man. He becomes meat. He becomes flesh. The one who always was and was with God and was God becomes as much a human being as you and I ever are. Now, like every other king in the ancient world, King Solomon wanted to build a house for his God, except maybe unlike them, he knew what he was doing because he knew that nothing could contain the one and true God. Because how could something so limited as a temple ever contain the limitless? How could finite space bounded by walls possibly contain the unbounded, the infinite? It's why Solomon prays at the inauguration of the temple, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? So how does the eternal, the infinite, the limitless, the unbounded word become flesh? Does he take on the body of a fully grown warrior hero? You know, somehow some kind of human equivalent of himself, of his glory? No. An angel comes to Mary, a young virgin, and says, do not be afraid, Mary. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And so the one who created all things enters his creation. And the limitless is limited. The uncontainable is contained, not in a vast and beautiful temple, but in an embryo and in his mother's womb. And he who was before all time entered time. And when he was born, the one who the highest heavens cannot contain was wrapped in cloths and contained in a manger, an animal's feeding trough. It is no wonder that the Magi, who knew something of what was up, when they eventually found Jesus, fell down and worshipped him. Because when you know what that manger contains, the uncontainable, what else could you do but worship? Well, i tell you what you could do, because I can't culture tells you what to do, and that is worship yourself. Okay, make yourself, make your emotions, make your desires, your God and your authority. And everyone else needs to bow down to you and how you're feeling and, and what you say about yourself. And it promises you that if you live like that, you will be happy. But in reality... Depression and anxiety and suicide and medication use and loneliness are all going up. Why? Because you cannot bear the weight of being God. Because you're not God. But the one in the manger is. The word made flesh. And you need something. You need someone greater than yourself to worship. And this baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger is him. 
You see, why does the word become flesh? Well, look again at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Because before Solomon built the, uh, built the temple, God dwelt among the people in the tent, the tabernacle of meeting. And the glory of God once descended on that tent and on the temple in cloud and fire. But now, John says, God has come down, not in smoke and fire, He's come down as one of us. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, I don't know, maybe you would say for yourself, you know, personally, I feel closest to God out in nature. You know, give me a day in the mountains and it just does something to me. And you are right. Okay, God has revealed himself through nature. Or maybe you're less an outdoorsy type. Maybe what turns you on is the life of the mind. And for you, whether it's science or the arts, trying to think God's thoughts after him is what does it for you. And you're also right. You know, Proverbs says it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and it is the glory of kings to search the matter out. Or maybe you're more intuitive than that. Maybe you're a bit more of a you know, feeler than that and you just sense the spiritual and the, and the supernatural much more than you could ever verbalise it. And again, the Bible is clear. There is a supernatural world domain to be sensed and felt. But when God wants you to know him, when God chooses to speak to you, when God wants you to find him and to enjoy him, he doesn't send you a mountain to gaze on. He doesn't, I'm sorry to say, even send you scientific concepts to explore or even a feeling to be had. He sends you his son. Because if the word was and is a person, that means you too can be in a relationship with him. And Augustine wrote, he was born so that we might be reborn. Because when you do know him, when you do enter into relationship with him, nothing can ever be the same again. Your life is remade and the burden of having to be your own God is lifted off of you. And however great your experiences of nature, your knowledge of science, or your feelings of spirituality are, they are nothing, John says, compared to what you can experience and know and feel when you know the Word made flesh. Firstly, the Word became flesh. Secondly, the Almighty became weak. Now, sadly, in our day, we have grown used to politicians making grandiose boasts about themselves. If you think how ridiculous those boasts are, they are nothing in comparison to the claims that the New Testament writers make about Jesus. John says in verse 3 that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And the writer to the Hebrews says... He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So they are saying that every star in every galaxy, every leaf on every tree, every wave on every ocean, every tiny plankton jiggling in every ocean, Every atom and every force exists and only exists because Jesus told them to exist. And it is him who holds them all together. Just think about that. Just think about that. That means that all the combined power of the universe, tapped and untapped, natural and supernatural, is but a falling feather in the storm force winds of Christ's power. And yet, the one who holds the universe together was knit together in his mother's womb. And the one who holds all things in his hands was held in her arms. And the one who took the dust of the earth and breathed on it to create man became a man of dust. Why? Well, listen to Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now, when you're going through something tough, it is great to have somebody who comes alongside you and, and empathizes with you. But the hard truth is, even when they care deeply about you, sometimes their words can sound a bit hollow because they haven't experienced truly what you are experiencing. But when they have, when they really know what you are going through, because they've been there, then far from their words sounding hollow, they resonate with meaning. And there is some degree of comfort to be had in knowing that your creator knows and understands you because he is your creator. But how much greater is that comfort when you know that he really knows because he's experienced it, because he has walked where you walk. And if you look at Psalm 103, when the psalmist says that God knows that we are dust, he's talking about our sin and our repeated failures to stand up under temptation. And we're like men and women of dust, and we're always giving in. Yet because he knows what we are like, he is merciful and compassionate towards us. Okay, but then listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says of Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so Jesus, the Almighty, became weak. He became a man of dust, subject to temptation, so that he might conquer every temptation. Just think for a moment about your temptations, what it is that tempts you. Maybe a temptation to fear or to worry. Maybe your temptation to power and glory. Or think about your temptation to get your own back or to push yourself forward. Maybe your temptation to look at stuff you shouldn't look at or not to look at stuff that you should look at. Jesus faced all of those. But where we fail, he conquered. And as we put our trust in him and not in ourselves, his victory becomes our victory. He became weak so that we might become strong, strengthened with his grace to stand strong, but also strengthened with his mercy when we fail to. The word became flesh and the almighty became weak. Thirdly, the rich became poor. Now, Sue will tell you, Sue, my wife, uh, she will tell you that I live under the delusion that I am still 25. I've told you, that, told you that before as well. Okay, that was rudely broken this week uh, when we were invited to a meeting with our bank to discuss my retirement. And I was sat there thinking, and actually, I actually said it to our advisor. I said, I don't know what I'm doing here. Okay, I'm only 25, or at least I only feel like I'm 25. We should be having this conversation in 30 years' time. But part of that meeting was that they wanted a list of all of our financial resources and investments. Let's just say it didn't take long to come up with that list. I want you to imagine trying to draw up a list of Christ's riches and all of his worth. Where would you begin? Where would you end? In verse 4, John says, in him was life. That means he is the wellspring of all life. How do you put a value on that? In verse 9, he says, Christ is the true light, which gives light to everyone. So he sees and knows all things, and all true knowledge comes from him. Now, maybe it would be possible. I'm sure you scientists can tell me you've done it. Okay, maybe it is possible to estimate and quantify the total power of the sun. But how do you put a value on the infinite life and light of Christ? It's why John says in verse 14, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, because glory carries this sense of weight, of immeasurable, unquantifiable weight and value. And Christ is full of it. And yet in the words of that beautiful song that we have just sung, he who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became poor. 
Martin Luther wrote, when Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, they were the most insignificant and despised. No one knew or was conscious of what God was doing in that stable. And Luther goes on to point out that Christ did not come to the wealthy houses or the rich apartments of Rome, those places that were filled with the wealth of the world. But when the glory of heaven became flesh, those houses and those apartments stood strangely empty and hollow compared to the glory and the wealth and the riches that filled the virgin's womb, a poor virgin's womb, and that manger in a stable. Why come so low? Well, Paul tells us, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So he who was considered of no value was humbled, so that you might know your true value. He emptied himself so that you might be filled, filled with the riches of his spirit, filled with the gifts and the graces of his spirit, filled with the riches of his inheritance for you in the saints. And he was shut out so that you might be brought in. He found no room so that a room might be prepared for you. The word became flesh, the almighty became weak, and the rich became poor. Lastly, the king became the servant of all. Now, in, on the night of Jesus' arrest, when he was arrested in Gethsemane, one of his disciples goes on the attack with a sword. And I think what follows is telling because Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A few hours later, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, representative of the most powerful king in the world, asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, Jesus is a king more powerful and more glorious than Pilate could ever comprehend. A king with thousands upon thousands of angels at his disposal, just one of which, if it were to appear, would cause Pilate to drop down dead with fear. Yet this king of glory allows himself to be tried and then executed on a cross. The penalty reserved for the scum of the earth and for slaves. He allows himself to go through that by a, at the hands of a mere representative of a human king. Why? Well, in Philippians Chapter 2, Paul tells us, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the king of kings humbled himself so that he might become your servant, the commander-in-chief of myriad, myriad angel armies took the lowest place so that you might be lifted to the highest. And at the cross, all of our sin, all of our unworthiness, all of our absence and lack of glory, it was all counted to him. And like a servant, like a slave, he carried it so that all of, all of his righteousness might be counted to us. So when I was an undergraduate, a group of us friends um, bundled into a car one weekend just before Christmas and went for a weekend of hiking up in the uh, north of England. And we were staying in a small village up in the moors and on the Sunday morning we went to the um, small local Methodist chapel I think there were about seven of us, and uh, we practically doubled the size of the congregation. I can still remember what the old preacher preached on and what he said, one line in particular, because it felt like he was pointing us out in the back row. And he said, you cannot bow at the cross of Christ. I can't do the Yorkshire accent, I'm afraid. <laughs> you cannot bow at the cross of Christ until you have first bowed at the cradle of Christ. Now you can quibble with his theology, okay, but he has got something fundamentally right there. You see, you and I will never fully grasp what is going on at the cross until we grasp the depth of what is going on in the stable and the manger, that the word was made flesh, that the Almighty was made weak, that the rich became poor, so that the King might become servant of us all. In Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge goes from being a rich, proud miser, clutching and grasping and covetous of every penny, to one who by the end of the story is dispensing gifts and food parcels to the poor and he's giving his wealth away. Why? Because he's been converted by Christmas, by the one who became poor so that we might become rich in him. Understand that, Paul says, and it will humble you and you will willingly serve others because the king has served you and you will be generous because he has been infinitely generous to you and you will worship him because you have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray together.